0: It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011.
1: You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman.
0: It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. (laughs) You
1: see what I I did there? Uh, Yeah. Uh, And I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice.
0: We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpressionnage. Man, I love that movie.
1: We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninotchka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles.
0: A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series.
1: Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn.
0: For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with The Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises.
1: Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape.
0: And for our David Mamet Wright series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross.
1: Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them.
0: Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals.
1: Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright.
0: And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends
1: And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
0: So, thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, before we get started we we've got uh, this is
1: a big it, it's a big day. It's probably the most important thing that's going to happen on tonight's show.
0: <laughs> it is of course our annual listener's choice drawing. Is it semi-annual, bi-annual, multi- semi-annual? It I is semi-annual. Three. It is tri-annual.
1: It's a trifecta. It's a trifecta. Uh, it is, is our
0: listener's choice drawing. Uh, and we are very excited about this because we've got some great uh, comments and suggestions on Facebook. And uh, so here we do. We've got we've added everybody who has commented on Facebook. Everybody who's been in on Facebook, we've added them to the list uh, since the last listener's choice. And now we've got a random, we've got a hat.
1: And uh, it's spangled. And I'm going to push the button right now. Push the button. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Our next listener's choice episode is going to feature the voice of Michael Cook talking about the Great Escape. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. That's I haven't great. seen that in a while. It's going to be a fun one to talk about.
0: I know you were hoping for Dirty Dancing.
1: I was, but
0: still, Great Escape. That is great. That's Ernest Borgnine, right?
1: It's a lot of people. It's Steve McQueen. It's yeah. Ernest Borgnine. It's uh, uh, Richard Attenborough. Ah, yeah.
0: classic.
1: So that one is going to, uh, that'll be right after our Fritz Lang series, right before our little, uh, uh, what did we call it, our challenge for each other series?
0: I don't know what we called it, but it's going to be good. <laughs>
1: it's going to be good. Well,
0: thank you everybody to, who has written in on Facebook. We sure appreciate it. And this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to dig in with uh, Michael. Thanks for, for suggesting The Great Escape. That's a great, great choice.
1: Absolutely is. Uh, yes, it is. Let's
0: do this, Andy. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel uh, on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hello, hello, hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our classic Fritz Lang series with his largely undercriticized 1928 film Spies... Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Real. And if you've ever seen a clown do that one trick on stage that he can never do twice... Then you should hurry up and jump on the tiny car for the next reel's Instagram hashtag, pony prize, hashtag, guess the movie challenge.
1: And with that, let's try to catch up with games master Stephen Smart to find out who won before his train crashes in the tunnel. Hey guys, and uh, this week we slipped back to the late 50s for a slice of Douglas Cirque and Imitation of Life from
0: 1959, starring Lana Turner. Congrats to at Skifton, Kristen, who nailed it on image one. You are entered into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. And we've got some follow-up on the blot spot.
1: We were uh, a little bit
0: further afield than front of the show, Ben Lott.
1: Yeah, Ben says Metropolis is a very interesting blend of genres. It is a sci fi film that mixes together themes of classicism, science, religion, and politics. Personally, I didn't have as much of a struggle with plot holes, although I certainly noticed them. I was impressed with how much this film felt ahead of its time, and those matte paintings and stop motion miniatures were spectacular. Your rank 201, my rank 91.
0: Top 100 for Ben.
1: I'd say that's a winner.
0: Well, I'm, I'm
1: glad we did it. I am too. I mean, I like I said. I it may not be in my like top one hundred films, but it certainly is a film that uh, I find mesmerizing to watch. So it's one I'll definitely return to. For now, Andy, I,
0: let's do trailers.
1: So my trailer, theme, <laughs> I really. I'm looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I love a good horror movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I know you don't love a good horror movie. I'm really curious what your read on this one is going to be because it looks like maybe not so much just a, a straight-out horror as much of as a thriller. And, you know, the look of this. It's, it's the film called Don't Breathe. The story is a... a, a a pair who decides to break into this house where this, uh, this guy is supposedly has some riches stashed and he's blind. So they figure, Hey, you know, we can kind of sneak around in the house quietly and get his stuff. Well, it turns out this guy has a little more up his sleeve than, uh, than maybe they thought. And, uh, it's, he really kind of goes nuts. Stephen Lang plays the blind man and, uh, it, he is, um, what was he? He was in uh, uh, Avatar. Oh, Avatar! He's the bad guy in Avatar. All the Avatars, Miles Quaritch. Yes, yes. So I'm curious to see how he continues in the rest of the Avatar films. So we've got Dylan Minnette, who I think is always a great actor, just one of those young up and comers who's just brilliant in everything he does. Uh, Jane Levy and Daniel Zavato as these kids who are in this house, and they are trying. You know, this blind man comes across them. And has his gun, and he hears one of them and shoots and kills this one. And so now the other ones are trying to get out. But then, at some point, they they get, like, it looks like into the basement where they find that this guy apparently likes to keep other people chained up and locked up. And it's it looks like a really, really just a creep fest. And I've heard nothing but good things about it. Very excited to see this one. It's directed by uh, Fede Alvarez, who did the recent remake of Evil Dead. And, you know, a lot of people didn't like that, but... It, I guess I'm one of those weirdos who I just really don't like the Evil Dead films at all, but I liked his. So So I'm the backwards one, clearly, but I really did enjoy what he did with Evil Dead. It was pretty gruesome. This one doesn't look quite so gruesome, but it sure looks terrifying. What did you think?
0: Well, uh, first on your Evil Dead, I am with the rest of the world. I really didn't like it, and I didn't see it, and I don't even think I got through the whole trailer. So, really terrible. Uh, In this case, I am stoked for this movie. How did that happen? No, this trailer was awesome awesome I love the whole concept I love the idea I love it but maybe it's because of my my uh, you know Daredevil fetishism right now uh, I'm actually wearing the red leather suit as we did we do this I'm I love that show I love the whole idea and so taking that principle and doing all that crazy stuff um, in in this kind of a, a, a context uh, this this excites me yeah. Is, it's really haunting. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about it. What I'm more excited about is that on IMDb, you know how it has the section right below the photos? It says, people who liked this also liked? Uh-huh. Okay, so I did that search, and I came up with uh, uh, 31 and Green Room and uh, Valley of Violence and The Waiting and all these really appropriate uh, films to that, that I can understand why people who liked this film also liked those films. Right. And... The number one pick there is Sausage Party, an animated <laughs> movie about one sausage's quest to discover the truth about his existence. I can't wait to see how that relates when That's I see very Don't funny. Breathe.
1: <laughs> very very funny. Yeah, looks really good. When's it come out? Uh this one is coming out August, late August, August 26th. It looks like uh you know, it opened at South by Southwest and it's going to be a pretty good release um August 26th into uh early September and it looks like at this point the Netherlands September 28th is kind of the latest of its release dates that are uh, out there.
0: My trailer Andy is I don't know what to make of my trailer. It is Hell or High Water, uh director David McKenzie, writer Taylor Sheridan, stars Ben Foster, Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges, uh, playing the role of Chris Christofferson. This is the story of a a divorced dad and his ex-con brother resorting to a desperate scheme to save their family's farm in West Texas. Uh, And so these two guys, uh, Chris Pine and Ben Foster, they decide they're going to rob a bank. And so it's a bank robbery movie. The trailer, I have to admit, like, it looks good. It's pretty. It's another one of those trailers that I'm very excited about because they chose great music. In this case, it's Blackwall's version of Knocking on Heaven's Door. It is really uh, uh, haunting. And so I really enjoyed the sort of artistry of the trailer. I'm worried that that the movie might be a little slow.
1: Yeah, I... I'm I'm curious about this one. It looks like something that I could be interested in. It also looks like it just it may not quite make it there. I I'm um, I love the all the actors in it, and just from watching the trailer, it looks like there's going to be some great characters uh, from these three um, leads. But yeah, I'm not quite sure if the story is going to be that different from things we've seen before. Still. It's certainly one that I'd rent, maybe not watch in the theaters, but it's definitely one I would check out.
0: This is definitely on the list. Anything, I mean, Buck Taylor's in it, for crying out loud. Uh, Buck Taylor, Dale Dickey. Uh, you know, these are, it, it is a great, it, it's a great cast. I think it's going to be a really, uh, uh, it's an interesting chance for a lot of great actors to do great, great character parts. This one, uh, it's it's a little bit earlier than yours, August 12th in the U.S., earlier a little bit earlier uh it it opens uh it actually gosh what's today today's the 16th as we record this right it's playing right now uh in france it's it's at Cannes.
1: oh that's why it's playing
0: we get to see it in august netherlands in october and uh i don't know it doesn't have any dates for any place else sorry rest of the world
1: (laughs) you'll have to wait
0: (laughs) please andy let me stay here don't send me away again. I won't take any more space than a little dog. Spies, Andy, 1928. Now, neither of us had seen this film. It was uh, directed by uh, Fritz Lang. It was written, uh, the novel was written by Theo von Harbo uh, and Fritz Lang. For the screenplay, Theo von Harbo, at the I believe at the time they were married, is that correct?:
1: Yeah, they were know? married I think until thirty three
0: until thirty three yes, okay, yeah. so uh, they were married it stars Rudolf klein roga uh, Gerda Marus, and Willie Fritsch is number three twenty six uh, It is uh, the uh, uh, what did they say it's the second to the last silent film that Fritz Lang directed before he moved into the talkies. And uh, there we go. This is, I'm going to tell you, Andy, I had fun watching this movie. I had problems with it, but I had fun. That's exactly
1: where I am. That's totally where I am. Um, I think that this is something that uh, in a lot of silent films, there's just, they hadn't quite figured out the story construction yet. So it's hard to kind of look at it with modern screenwriting eyes because, I mean, there's definitely uh, plot holes all over the place with this and Metropolis. But the style is so much fun. Fritz Lang is having a blast making this. I mean, you can just tell the way that he's just kind of all over the place with the story. And it's just, it is a vibrant, energetic film that uh, feels very different from Metropolis. It's an interesting follow-up to that film because they definitely have different, uh, a different vibe going for each. So it's great to see that he kind of can step out and do different things. And this is really a fun movie to watch, despite any problems that you'd have with it.
0: Um, the the film is about uh, a a yeah
1: explain it let me hear you
0: I have no idea <laughs> the whole story is about uh, this this gentleman Hagi who is the banker by day criminal mastermind by night and he is always a few steps ahead of everybody else the the police the the government the state sponsored spy agents and we have this dapper agent three twenty six who really they they hadn't figured out uh, numbering conventions because but but at least we can see that 007 came from somewhere. I love that. Right? We meet him he is in under he is uh undercover uh he goes through a number of costume changes and look changes this agent 326. We never find out what his name is. Uh it, he he goes from a, a dirty sort of uh, uh uh hobo uh into uh into this dapper Uh, you know, suit-wearing lad uh, who's who's quite fine. And uh, he and this beautiful um, criminal spy fall in love. That causes everything to go uh, awry, as you would expect. This is a spy versus spy story with the romance twist, and it is very much a predecessor to uh, all of the great Spy stories that we watch today, uh, and I find it really fun and I think I was most surprised that uh, at just how well the spy versus spy trope holds up in silence
1: it was uh it was a lot of fun, and it was I totally agree with you that looking at this and seeing all these tropes that we are just so accustomed to now in modern spy films and kind of seeing kind of a a birthplace for it. I mean, I don't know if it's a, really the birthplace. There may have been other things, but I mean – it feels like the cinematic birthplace for for all of this sort of stuff whether it's the all the little cool spy gadgets and the um the numbering of the spies and the the counter spies and the you know the the sexy spy that our hero falls in love with and the the also sexy um spy who who woos the uh you know the good information out of somebody i mean there's so many things going on oh and then of course not to mention uh you know haggy who is totally like the foundation for for Blofeld? And not to Absolutely. mention like Doctor Strangelove. I mean, yes, it's, it's so interesting.
0: And Doctor Strangelove and like Stalin. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, there he is uh, definitely a, a model for evil.
1: Yeah, I didn't mention Doctor Strangelove last week, but certainly uh, you know Rudolph. Uh, Klein Roga, seems to, in these past two films, have thrown a lot of information Kubrick's way for the foundation of that character.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I I really like about the way this is put together, and I should say, in my synopsis, which was generally terrible for this film, uh, I did not bring anything up about the Japanese and the treaties, uh, because I was confused largely about the japanese uh engagement and the treaties the whole thing i thought was going on in the in the the film the whole purpose of the film uh was that kleinroga had somehow gotten his hand on the um uh we'll, we'll call it the codex right <laughs> right the the book of spies and so now he knows who all the undercover spies are uh, and and that is definitely a part of it. He has this book of spies in the beginning. He goes through, and he already knows who 326 is. He's well aware of 326, even though 326 thinks that he's totally undercover. Uh, but I, I think I misplaced my attentions and got super confused by the the introduction of all these treaties and such.
1: Yeah, that was a little confusing. I think—I mean, I'll try to see if I can— uh, if I can nail it, I think what was going on is there was this Japanese treaty that, if it was signed, was going to change the way that the business relations happened between Asia and Europe that would in a very big way um affect the business dealings that Haggy was doing with his bank
0: oh I think
1: yeah and so and so he wanted to stop this treaty from one trying to uh, prevent it from being signed, and then if that failed, which it did, of preventing it from being delivered to Tokyo, which he does succeed at. So I think that is um, what is happening there.
0: Okay. I had a feeling there was something like that, and I love the way the the treaty handoffs play out with uh, Masimoto and his delivery boys. Uh, I think that's fascinating, we can talk about that in a little bit, but um, but boy, getting there was a mess, and the opening sequence of the film uh, was horrendously bad. Fun, what? fun, but horrendously I bad. Like, I, it is so impossible to follow the first, like, five minutes of the film, which makes it hard to get into.
1: I don't know, I, I actually got into it pretty easily, and I, I was I found it very refreshing, the the way that he jumped into this world without giving us a lot to go on, we really just kind of had to just go, like, grab and hold on tight and just see if we could kind of keep up. And I thought that was fantastic. I really, um, really loved the whole opening of this. It just felt so fresh and different from Metropolis. Just the cuts, the the way the story was playing out with these, you know, these all these heists of people stealing stuff and killing people to steal their paperwork and everything— um, leading up to our introduction of number three twenty six, I thought it was just fabulous. I I would give it two thumbs up.
0: Oh, I have two thumbs directly sideways. I was just <laughs> b- pointing at each other. I was baffled by the, all those handoffs, and I think I I think that is one of those areas where, uh, it, you know, it reminded me so much of like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, you know, the the segments I had to read over and over and over again, you know, it's just maybe it's just I, I recognize that sometimes when I dive into these, these kinds of stories, my brain might not be functioning on all cylinders until I get a few pages in. That was what I experienced here. I just hit vapor lock so early trying to keep up with the names and the faces, not even the names, just the faces and the suits um, that uh, I got super confused. Until until I started, you know, I found myself able to lock on to a familiar face.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty abrupt beginning, but then it's pretty quick. Uh, we do get yeah. to meet Agent 326, and we stick with him for quite a while as we kind of glean his role in this. We see he's not just this bum, but he's actually this uh, super spy.
0: He's a super spy. He ends up hiding behind uh, uh, a shaving cream and a an uncommonly happy butler fellow. <laughs> uh there's some great kind of slapsticky uh e- exchanges that that it's funny a film like this because it it really is you know we said it's a it's a predecessor to some of these spy action films that that really uh, slide I- in and out of of what i would normally characterize as stereotypical um silent film slapstickery uh it, it and and i think metropolis and this largely uh, shy away from that sort of trite handling uh and yet sometimes it it does it it adds some of the levity back into this film which is otherwise fairly you know fairly serious uh and i really like that i mean i found it it ended up being paced pretty well i saw the the uh, what is it the 178 minute oh, was it that long yeah something like that 140 or 144 minutes okay <laughs> 140 like, what minutes. Well, okay, so uh, here the IMDb technical specs say runtime 178 minutes, uh, DVD edition 144 minutes.
1: Yeah, I think that it also suffered from uh, quite a loss of its footage for a while. I I think the original was,
0: yeah, just an hour and a half.
1: Yeah, I think they cut cut quite a bit, or I'm not exactly sure what happened if it just got destroyed, but um, it wasn't until 2004 where they took an old nitrate print that was being stored somewhere, and they were able to kind of restore most of it and i mean it looked i thought it looked pretty solid so uh, okay what were the big highlights for you you can't say enough how much spy films after this pulled from this type of storytelling with the double crosses and the triple crosses and the quadruple crosses and just everything. I mean, it seemed like everybody ended up being like a counter spy of some sort, like some random stranger in the street. No, they're a spy too. I just loved that. It was like, it was so fun in the way that it just kind of took this world. and just made it like so untrustworthy. You can't trust anybody. I loved the bit when he's, um, doing the paperwork and i, I can't remember specifically what it was for but he had to fill out this form and he goes to this little table and, the, and this other guy who's in there breaks all the pens except for the one and we find out why afterward because um after our hero leaves this guy goes and he lifts the pad that this guy was writing on and he has this secret like carbon copy thing underneath it and he's copied the whole message and it's, it's brilliant just, All this stuff. And then not to mention, this was, I think, my favorite bit, the fact that Haggy ended up not only running the bank during the day and being this master criminal by night, he also was an agent for these guys. He was number 719, and he's also a clown. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's crazy. And the reveal that he could walk. I mean, that was just a fantastic reveal. Uh, when all of a sudden he stands up from his wheelchair. There's so much stuff going on in here that uh, just was thrilling. And sure, the story, uh, I mean, it's very much, if if you step back and you really kind of analyze it, it's written very specifically so that this, movie can actually happen like the fact that these newspapers print like so ridiculously fast that the news is out like the minute it happens and these people get informed right away it's like i don't think that's exactly how it works but you know what it's all in fun for this this great spy movie so i i'm all for uh the way that this story is told i think it's just a lot of fun
0: so Thea von harbo uh was married to Rudolf klein
1: Yes, we didn't mention that last week. We did not mention that. Do,
0: do you think any of their uh, changing uh, allegiances in real life impacted the <laughs> the allegiances and double crosses in the movie?
1: This is one of those sorts of relationships where I, I feel like there's a little bit of a, a Bill and Hillary sort of thing going yeah. on. You know, she was very much uh, kind of of the Nazi mindset, so she had a, a different political mindset. She ended up, I believe, directing <laughs> some of her own projects. Pray
0: tell, what are you saying about Bill and Hillary?
1: I'm not saying they're Nazis. I'm just <laughs> no, go saying. Go ahead, dial that they, back. Go yeah, ahead. <laughs> they, they had a uh, a relationship that seemed to focus more on the work and less on their actual um, love for each other. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. And so she focused more on her work. And on this film, he actually started an affair with Gerda Maurus, uh, who plays Sonia. And that uh, that relationship lasted for a little while. And, you know, they would still go hang out with his wife and stuff. And, and, or he, she would know that he was going out with her and he would take her out on, take Gerda out on the town. And his wife didn't seem to care. It was just very much that sort of relationship. So I don't know how much Rudolph cared. I I guess it's just such a fascinating relationship. I'd, I'd be, I'd love to be in the room with those four people and just kind of see if there's tension or if they all are like, yeah, cool. It's, you know, it's pre 60s.
0: This was, yeah, you know, I mean, this wasn't this how it was like on Friends?
1: <laughs> exactly. Nothing's now changed. That would be a great sitcom. That's right. <laughs> Lang and Friends. Lang
0: and Friends. <laughs> Uh uh-huh. yeah, I think it was it that's it's just crazy. Um there there are some other cultural things going on. I mean, too it, it's it's hard not to to watch this and think about the impact of her um, sort of pro um pro state uh mindset. So she was very much a co-conspirator in the rise of the Nazi Party and the the National Socialist German Workers Party and uh, and ultimately that's what drove uh, them apart. Now I understand. Did you read uh, anything more about uh, Fritz Lang and his invitation uh, by Joseph Goebbels to join the party to to lead? Yeah. Uh, the um, the uh, national film organization.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Crazy. And it was one of those. Oh sure. Yeah. Let me just go get my things. I just need to
0: call my broker.
1: <laughs> and uh next thing you know he's, he's on he's in, in Paris.
0: Hollywood. yeah well he or, went yeah, to he Hollywood. spent some time in paris and, yeah and with it, yeah. did his did his paris uh, the paris years so it was uh, it's an interesting thing to watch their to to sort of watch this film in the eyes of with the eyes of their relationship and you know history in mind uh, that that ultimately broke them uh broke them apart
1: it uh, it was one of those things that happened to people i mean i think the d p Uh, When that whole thing changed, I I think his output uh, diminished quite a bit. I think in this particular case, most of the cast managed to kind of weather it. It's, but it's one of those things, yeah, like we talked about last week. It could make or break a career.
0: Direction. Fritz Lang, how do you, How did this one change for you? Did you notice anything different uh, between this film and the last in terms of the way he approached the screen?
1: Well, like I said, I mean, I, I really loved that this felt so vibrant. Metropolis, uh, it certainly had its action moments, as especially as we built toward the end. But it felt very... Um, uh, kind of meticulous and planned and and uh things kind of took their time a little bit more in that, you know you got the marching and everything. this one uh feels just very energetic right out of the gate, and I think that it like I said earlier it 's just he had a good understanding of the different genres uh now reading uh, i've been reading some of his uh biography, which is uh, uh quite interesting The Nature of the Beast uh, by Patrick McGilligan. And um, he said that a reporter who was visiting the set said that Lang's methods appear to be unchanged. He, uh, quote, Lang sees everything, makes everything himself, supervises the makeup of actresses. He controls all the details of the costumes, furniture, and props. He's infallible. Um, he seems to really kind of be the guy who, I mean, he loved, he was a guy who loved that credit, a film by Fritz Lang, um, and wanted to make sure he had his uh, thumbprint on every single detail in the film. Um, He was, um, in this particular case, because of his relationship with Ufa, which had soured quite a bit after Metropolis and his uh, gargantuan overspending on that particular film, he ended up creating his own production company here And I can't remember what it was called. I think it was just Fritz Lang Film, GmbH. And um, although Ufa still distributed it, he had to be a little more careful with the budget because it was uh, not being provided for by Ufa. So um, what I read was that he was generous with his salaries, but he was almost wasteful with his footage. And reading about him and the way that he directs, it sounds kind of like David Fincher. He would just like excessively uh, take shot after shot after shot um trying to get the details exactly the way that he saw them there's one story where um the when the glass plate behind sonya is is shot and uh, agent 326 has to like pull her out of the way um fritz lang insisted on being the one who aimed the bullet and took the shot himself uh because he was convinced that the actors had to be afraid to make the audience afraid and uh, he also was unhappy with the way the bullet hole I went in, so he tried a shotgun, he tried a slingshot, he tried pistols, all sorts of different firearms, until he finally was satisfied. I think it was like 20-some takes of shooting this plane behind her head. Did you look for his hands? I noticed hands everywhere in this film. And I also, I remembered there were quite a few, actually, in Metropolis. There's always those, like, worker hands, the yep. shots of the hands, yeah. Uh, reaching up. And this one, I mean, right out of the gate, we see the hands um, picking up papers. We see the hands. Uh, I loved the hands that would just randomly reach in and, and help out uh, Haggy, like lighting his cigarettes or whatever for him. And it took me a while to realize, oh, he's got a nurse here with him at all times. But at first, it was just like these random hands that kept poking in.
0: I There were a, a number of, um, of production elements that I thought were really uh, lovely. It was funny this film did not carry over the grandeur of Metropolis insofar as it carried over the detail in, in many of the, the set pieces. Uh, what is your sense of how this one compares to just just the overall production look?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean it wasn't it wasn't nearly as uh, magnificent a look. Um, that being said, it was uh, still, it, uh, it had a look and it was it, it, it fit what uh, they were doing here and I know the budget was less and they the shooting I mean geez metropolis was like nearly a year or more than a year this one was like you know 15 weeks it was super tight so they just cranked this thing out and um, uh, but the look I mean I thought the production design by Otto hunt and Carl Volbrecht um, who worked on Metropolis I, I thought it had a nice look here yes the walls kind of just all kind of had kind of a, a gradient sort of look to them, um, but it still felt uh, it felt kind of a, it, it expressionist in its own uh, spy world way.
0: Well, and some of them did. It was interesting the way the sets tended to match the character that dominated that set, right? Um, it, for example, uh, Klein Roga's set beneath the, the bank uh, was very sparse with the exception of his desk. It could have been practically a news desk. Right? Right, yeah. Uh, except for it was like a transformer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> pieces would slide in and out of it, like it would move around and all that stuff. But the walls were absolutely bare. That the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, it was just ever it was very simple and stately and, and you know, barren. Uh, and yet we go into some of the other sequences, the downtown sequence in particular, there's this lovely just mat, the sort of expressionist mat, the circus circus mat on the wall behind the the, the street lamp. And there are just some wonderful kind of bar sequences that, that I think are, are much more detailed and sort of match the characters as they move through them in a way that that I think accentuates their, uh, their sort of on-screen personality. I thought that was really interesting.
1: I loved the um, the like little in- and out slits in the desk that would shoot newspapers up.: before Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, right? That's very clever.: Oh, that's uh, great. I love the live orchestra at the boxing match. Uh that <laughs> that's, that's ends up, into a dance. Turns into a dance. Yeah, a really crazy dance. Um th- there were a couple of other things I noticed about the the um um that I, I wanted to talk about. First of all, this this seems like, and I, I as I was reading up, one of the things that I noticed that he does here more than other films is this this insert, these insert cuts that seemed really novel in this film where we're looking at one thing and we jump we do a jump cut in on the detail and then back out right uh these insert cuts on objects that was new in his overall structure of
1: these films yeah it's a it's a nice little touch I, I think it all looks good
0: you're not excited you're not excited enough about the about this as a novelty
1: no i it was I was just I, in my brain I was uh kind of thinking I'm like does he does that happen in metropolis and i, I can't quite recall it does not
0: it does not i tell you now sir well there you go that's right and it was i think that was really i mean in terms of evolution of of uh just evolution of production of the of the editing process this is a novelty and this is something to be excited about. It really is. I mean, commence it, the jubilation.
1: It's amazing what Lang pulls off, and I mean, that's what's great about going back and looking at a lot of these silent films—is seeing what these uh, filmmakers just w- were coming up with as they played with this new medium and kind of invented it as they went along. And you definitely see mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of uh, crossing the line. Uh, throughout Mm -hmm. as they're as they're making these uh, putting these scenes together but it's like they didn't quite know what that meant yet and it took a little time before they could really kind of figure that out but you know that being said I mean we're talking a lot about the production design and cinematography uh, by Fritz Arno Wagner who uh, you know he was kind of a key cinematographer in the silent era and into the early sound era. One of those guys whose name is just very critical to uh, German film worked with Lang and Murnau and uh, Pabst. And I, I think that, I think this was his third of four films, no second of four films that he would work on with uh, Lang. He did destiny in 1921 and then he's going to do M after this, along with the Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Um, but you know he did Nosferatu. He's done a lot of amazing things, and he, uh, they do a lot of fun imagery things. And also something else that uh, you know they did have some in Metropolis as well. But I love the um, where they overlay images on other images or text on other images. And when Sonia is trying to figure out why that thirty three one thirty three is so familiar to her when she sees it on the train. Uh, before she realizes that that was the number on the the paper, you've got that great imagery of that number kind of like dancing around on the train or moving with its wheels, and it's really fun. I loved the way they played.
0: I I made that same note. What is up with that? Is that a is that a representation of what her delusion or some sort of increasing stress or pressure, um, whatever it is? It is something that you know, uses this strange superimposition of these numbers to to move the story forward, and I really liked it. Yeah. They do the great. same thing. It's actually, I should say, it's not numbers, but just using superimposition. Uh, they do the same thing with Dr. Masamoto uh, uh, before he kills himself. They superimpose the Japanese flag uh, over him as he realizes that that he has been betrayed, and I think that's a really cool sequence um, as, as we realize sort of what has happened. And... The guys
1: who show up are like zombie couriers. They're like Japanese ghosts. They're uh, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it was I so love it. So
0: scary. It was just great. Uh, it, 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 can you how did the, can talk about the the sequence with the couriers? Can you can you do that?
1: These were the Japanese um, couriers that he had given these letters to, one of which was the actual treaty that had been signed and he was tra- telling them all to get to Tokyo. Very effective storytelling because we have uh, a guy come into Haggy's office and deliver two of these. And so we know that two guards are killed. And then somebody brings in the third one and we know the third guy is killed. And it's super effective storytelling. And then when Matsumoto finds this out, um, these three guys as ghosts, almost like his conscience, like he knows that he's going to have to commit Harry Carey now um, because he has... um, fallen for this woman who deceived him and so he's got to right the wrongs that he has made and it's uh I, I love this this ghostly um, uh, presence of these guys kind of almost commanding him but just kind of just there as his conscience making sure that he goes through with it
0: yeah it it's pretty grim. So the use of of these funny sort of camera tricks um, to to move the story forward, I think, is is just you know, like you said, going back to these old films when it was actually novel. Um, there's that's a fascinating lesson. Considering I spent all day doing the same thing to spoof an Adele video, <laughs> seeing these powerful tools that our that our ancestors, our filmmaking ancestors, had created, has come so far.
1: Chris Lang is rolling in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> I gave them these tools and this is what they this do. This is what they've done. <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah.
0: Let's talk cast, Andy. We've got to start with Klein Roga, right?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I think Haggy is great. Um, and I already mentioned kind of the precursor of, of uh, Blofeld and Dr. Strangelove. Not to mention you know, all the spoofs that have come. I mean, Austin Powers, you certainly see a little bit in here. Um, I loved him. I think he's just great in here. I love that he's got this strange system of hand signals that he delivers to his nurse when he's sending her messages across the room. <laughs> I don't know what was up with that, but I thought it was just awesome and I think that needs to be in a James Bond film. Totally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're right, hand signals to the nurse, that was right. Who was it in the train wreckage that it was it was it Willie Fritch uh as three twenty six? Who whose hand comes out of the wreckage and shoots With like a gun. periscope? Like a periscope. Yes. <laughs> yep. It reminded was... me of the trash compactor monster in Star Wars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, even George Lucas is stealing from this. He film. is. He's stealing from oh, this. Oh, I oh. thought that was so great. What do we know about Willy Fritsch? He's a great German actor who uh, had been around, but uh, Lang uh, nabbed him for this and his following film, The uh, Woman in the Moon. And uh, he's an actor who managed to kind of ride through the, the Nazi wave in Germany and make it out the other side. He never really kind of committed, and, uh, and I think he kind of uh, had a career that lasted into the 60s. So yeah, he was around for quite a while before he uh, passed away in 1973.
0: I thought he was a great dapper young lad, and uh, it was, he, he certainly served the role. Uh, he has a ton of
1: credits— He's a guy who looks the uh looks great as a bum, but then he also cleans up really nice. Yeah. And I thought that was great introducing him as a bum because he just fit that part so much and then to see him finally uh clean up once he's met Sonia to uh kind of woo her and uh, take the next steps in their in their uh you know, search for whatever it is they they were doing at the time. I thought uh it was great. I mean, I think he worked well. Playing both of those parts,
0: I think he was a singer too. It's like he's got a number of of uh, soundtrack hits from uh, that are still going on. One of his tracks was in *Inglorious
1: Bastards*. Well, word on the street is he sang this entire part uh, in the film, but because it's silent, uh, we just don't get to enjoy it.
0: See, now I can't tell if you're joking. (laughs) I can't tell if you're joking, and that's really mean. (sighs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so funny. It was so funny. No, it was Lillian Harvey's duet with him from the 1936 film Glückskinder. Yes. And uh, yes, uh, they sing the song, uh, I think it was called I Wish I Was a Chicken. Ich and wollte, song, ich
0: war ein Hund.
1: It can be heard playing on a phonograph in the basement scene uh, La Lusiane, as well as in the extended scene Lunch with Goebbels. Um, where uh, Goebbels happily sings a portion of the song after s- deciding to hold a private screening of the film.
0: Because so, who wouldn't? It's very go. catchy.
1: How about Gerda Maurus? Lang found her, uh, I believe, while he was doing Metropolis, or maybe before Metropolis. He saw her on the stages in Vienna and was just taken by her immediately and told her, hey, I want you to come be in my movies. She was like, oh, why would I want to do that? I'm I'm doing great on the stage, and I'd much rather be on the stage. So she stayed there, and uh, but then times got really tough. She was touring Germany. She came to uh, town and called him up, and uh, he happened to be filming Metropolis. And he instantly took a meeting with her and said, "I've got to cast you. Uh, you're perfect." And so she became his ingenue, and he helped her get used to the camera and kind of figure out how to screen act and everything. And of course, their affair began. And um, uh, but. Unlike, uh, uh, well, I should say, like the rest of his actors, he still was really hard on her. Um, During the production, there was a point where she actually had to go get her appendix removed, and he would not let her take it easy, despite the doctor's orders. Um, he was making her sprint. He was digging through train wreckage. Standing, she was standing for prolonged periods of time. She ended up develop- developing severe conjunctivitis because she was just so um, ill from having her appendix out that she would. She was doing all of her rehearsals with her eye, one of her eyes closed, to the point where she was weeping from the pain. It was so bad, and and he just uh, either didn't notice or purposefully didn't notice that she was having issues and just pushed on. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. But the thing with her is she delivered exactly what Lang wanted. And so Lang kind of uh, kept her around and I believe put her in his next film, Woman, Woman in the Moon. Um, she was one of those uh, lights in his life and, and a discovery that he made. Um, Leon Dyers, who plays Kitty, also happened to be one of those uh, women. Unfortunately, he was not that thrilled with the performance that he gave her. So her part got diminished in the course of the story, and her close ups uh, weren't as lovely as Gerda's. And Gerda had all sorts of lovely close ups and uh, got all the royal treatment of the film. So that's what happens when you please or don't please Fritz Lang. Lupu Pic it, as Dr. Masimoto. It was funny seeing Lupu Pic as Dr. Masimoto because I was like, is, is he Japanese? I don't think so. He's
0: not, he's Romanian. Yeah. And, uh, but he does have a vaguely, uh, sort of Pacific, uh, look about him. This was, this was not his only, his only film to play, uh, to play, uh, someone of Asian descent. Right. He, he is, he's played others in uh, other German films (laughs) where he plays an Asian, uh, character. But, uh, he is, uh, he's fascinating here and he's, he's like the, he's like the asian monopoly guy in this movie <laughs> He's like asian money bags it's the japanese stereotype of the monopoly guy according to uh, 1920s german filmmakers
1: that is funny Yeah, this was his last film um he ended up dying a few years afterward 1931
0: all right you wanted to talk about fritz rasp
1: i just loved his character here and it was such a different uh, as here here is colonel Jalusik. Which was so different from his character in Metropolis as the Thin Man, mm-hmm. I uh, and I really loved his mustache. <laughs> exactly. Now that is how you wear a mustache. If you're gonna friend. go,
0: go big, people.
1: There you go. Yeah, he was great. One of apparently, uh, Lang has quite a number of suicides in his films, and this is um, the first of four suicides that we see over the course of the film. He kills himself. Uh, Masamoto, uh, of course, commits. Harry oh, Carey. You've got uh, Morier who eats the cyanide pill. And then, of course, the big finale at the end, which I we didn't even mention, but uh, the ending with uh, Rudolf klein as Hoggy when he's dressed as a clown. And he's got that amazing speech, uh, pulls out a gun, screams curtain, shoots himself in the head and dies. And yeah. then that's the end.
0: And that's the end. And I, this was what I thought was novel about this is just the number of suicides that are just right on screen. Uh, yeah. All We see all of them even right. the close up you know headshot and obviously they they don't have the effects uh, that we do today but but it it's not as if um you know these older films were hiding anything or pulling any of their punches i mean they definitely showed it and i i was wondering I, it made me want to look into uh, which i haven't had time to do yet the the first use of these um these suicides on screen like i i don't remember hearing of any you know you know use of the cyanide pill on screen that felt very novel to me
1: yeah, it did. Uh, I mean Jalusik we don't see him. We see we see them cut to the gun on the table. We uh, don't see him kill himself. Yeah. And and with uh Masamoto, we stay on his face while he slits his belly open, which is uh, but we see him afterward, I mm-hmm. guess, mm-hmm. as he as he rolls over and dies. You're right. It's it's very novel. I'd be curious to know um at what point in cinema did uh did suicide first uh end up on screen and and how it was uh received.
0: Yeah, right. There is a, um, uh, there's a great article on Wired. Uh, oh, those movie spies and their cyanide pills. Um, that uh, that doesn't trace quite enough history, but it does have some very cool uh, photos and things. We'll put that in well, the show
1: notes. Of course, here in Phoenix, we had the guy who was in court, and when they announced him guilty, he bent over and put something in his mouth and chewed it up and it was a cyanide building he killed himself wow so straight out of the out of the spy movies right here in uh, phoenix
0: there is a a photo here which you can't obviously can't see i'm gonna send it to you just look at this this is let me just tell you the caption is cyanide damaged teeth
1: oh god (laughs) (laughs) that's a horrible pair of teeth
0: yeah really bad there's that i'm gonna put that in the show notes that's a, awesome. That's from the spy the spy museum. <laughs> <laughs> International Spy Museum in Washington. Man, I want to work there. What are we doing this thing for?
1: <laughs> the Spy Museum. That sounds fun. Yeah. I wonder if all the people who work there are secretly spies. Oh, I'd
0: have it no other way.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't work here if you're not an actual spy. <laughs>
0: We've talked a little bit about the uh, you know production getting it made, the the trouble that Metropolis put them in, uh, and Lang's new company. What else do we have to learn from uh, from getting this thing produced?
1: The uh, the film did decent business, and uh, but UFA, not one to uh, to hold back when they released a film, since they did come on board to distribute this. Um, they just, I guess, they had just fantastical special effects at the theaters where it was playing in. Um, And I guess at the actual premiere where they had the big premiere with everybody, they had a giant stylized eye with floodlights beaming from the pupils that would light up the crowd. Um, It sounds like a really fun (laughs) premiere to go to with these giant eyes. And like all the poster imagery, I mean, they they came up with some really great stuff of these eyes looking everywhere. And I, I really enjoyed kind of that element of the distribution for this film. Totally agree.
0: Generally, the artwork, and what's funny about the artwork is that it actually has a very Metropolis vibe to it, uh, in terms of some of the Art Deco style. Yes, it does. I think it's really funny that it doesn't necessarily carry over into the film itself, but the, the marketing was terrific.
1: You know, one thing that bummed me out about it is, I don't know if uh, Werner R. Hyman's score exists still, but the music that I heard was not that great. I was really unimpressed with the score that I had to sit through for this film.
0: You know, I was not wholly unimpressed. There were some sequences that I thought were really nice. Most of them were the solo pieces, solo piano, solo oboe. Uh, they As soon as they became... Uh, less of these sort of solo statements, musical statements, and more punctuation to other orchestral cues, I, I found myself losing interest in the music. And it became more and more painful as the film went on uh, because it's long. Um, that uh, the, You're right. I mean, the music is... I would have been interested in hearing the original score too because the music overall doesn't hold up in spite of, I think, some nice um, some nice moments.
1: Yeah, some nice moments. But on the whole, it just felt... I don't know. Just felt like they weren't quite the uh there
0: yeah, some of the, I think that some of the solos are, they they do a great job of pairing these solos with some great avant-garde, like down angles in the shot. Like when we first meet, uh, what's her name in the bar? She's kind of dressed as a gypsy. What is it? Was it? Uh, it was a Kitty? It was a Kitty, yeah. It, it, there's this great down angle. There's another one where we meet Agent. In the very beginning, we meet uh, uh, Roga in the wheelchair and number 37 comes in, his arms are waving and he's got these crazy eyes. You know, there's some a great pairing of music there. Uh, and, and so there are some things that really stand. Out in terms of visual, uh, these great dramatic visuals, up or down angles that I think are just fascinating. They're pretty few and far between in this film. Yeah. But yeah. Um, interesting nonetheless.
1: How did it do? You know, this is one of those movies where just nary a record exists as far as what they spent or what it made. I looked high and low and just could not find anything. If it does exist somewhere, please send it my way if you know where it exists, uh, our dear listeners. But what I did find in his uh, biography said, if the budget wasn't exactly shoestring, the circumstances were more modest than under Ufa's auspices and adjustments had to be made. The director was quite capable of revising plans and budgets as long as he accepted the conditions and capable of creating provocative quality films under stringent circumstances. It was creative supremacy, not financial freedom, that was Lang's true obsession and his Achilles heel." So it sounded like they had still had a decent budget to work with, and then uh, it, it did it seemed like it did okay. The critics were divided on it, some said it was a load of garbage, despite the flashy and extravagant effects. Others said it was enormously entertaining. but on the whole, people kind of felt like considering what Metropolis was, it just was a little bit anticlimactic. The reception um, audiences loved seeing Greta Maurus in the film, but on the whole, they kind of walked away. Um, Feeling a little uh, eh, and uh, it kind of was forgotten for a long time,
0: which I think is unfortunate. I think this was, a, you know, I opened with this that largely under-criticized film, I, I, and I'm I'm not saying that it was criticized poorly or or that, you know, was criticized as a not-great film, but that it isn't thought about enough in, in terms of his uh, overall catalog. And it, everything I read was that that overall analysis and study of this film is sparse, few and far between. And I think that's a shame, because it really is fun. And I'm telling you, if we have to flick chart this next to, uh, next to Metropolis, I'm going to pick this one. I had more fun watching this movie.
1: I'm kind of torn. It's one of those things where I feel like I, I can pull more from spa, uh, from metropolis when i watch that one but this one is way more fun and i i think largely i would pick this one over metropolis just for that reason
0: well i think we should in, in honor of that statement we should do it let's go rank it let's do it head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel everybody and uh, sign in with your account you know how we do it you just do a search for spies it's a little bit harder to find this is the 1928 spies not spies like us not spy no spy versus spy not uh what's the what's the Angelina Jolie Brad Pitt uh Mr and Mrs
1: Mr and Mrs Smith Smith <laughs> Don't spy. don't choose Mr. that Mrs. one spy.
0: <laughs> That's also that's also a spy film. It is just spies uh otherwise known as what how would you say it spione spione Spione. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I know you're making stuff up now. Let's do it.
1: All right, first up we have Spies Or, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah, I can't do I can't do it. I'm still, oh, brother. Yeah, I'm definitely.
0: The oh, brother block
1: sticks. You know, I I don't know if we said it, but man, did people know how to smoke in spies. (laughs) They were just constantly (laughs) clouded in smoke. I was like, oh, and vaping didn't even exist yet. But look how much smoke these guys are producing. (laughs) What are they smoking in those things? That was great. All right, spies or the Sandlot?
0: So here's here's my problem with this this pick. I I'd probably pick um, spies. I'm not sure if I would pick spies after the recency has kind of shaken free.
1: Yeah, I, I that's kind of where I am. I would go Sandlot first.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so too.
1: Spies or the Hudsucker Proxy?
0: Oh, but definitely Hudsucker.
1: I would do spies. <laughs>
0: All right, here we go. All right, one, one two, two, three, three paper. Head. What did you say? <laughs> what did you say in your, what was your losing I forgot thing? what we were doing. Did you say Pez? I said head.
1: Oh, no, you lose on principle. I do. Head? I, well, last week we talked about head, hand, and heart, and my <laughs> my brain went blank, <laughs> and I said head. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh,
0: that's really good uh do uh, i don't i'm i maybe I'm feeling generous
1: well, just so you know if it loses to hudsucker, it's gonna be below Metropolis on our list
0: and if you're okay with that so you're saying <laughs> it it has to beat hudsucker I am saying that then then let's go hudsucker I not that we're gonna game the <laughs> vaunted flick chart ranking. we would never want to game the sacred flick chart ranking, but let's go ahead and say uh spies.
1: Oh, you're saying spies okay, oh yes, no, you, you said yeah, like I'm
0: just saying stadium. you know in the right. in quiz show style, right, I'm gonna choose all spies I hear you. now,
1: all right, next up we have spies or the bishop's wife. I do spies, uh yes, all right, next up we have spies or the red shoes.
0: I'm gonna go the red shoes on this one,
1: me too. The Red Shoes takes it. Spies or the Parallax View? I'm going Parallax View. Parallax View, view, yeah. All right, we've got Spies or the Game. This Uh, is for Nick Langdon. I'm saying the Game. Yeah, I'm saying the Game. (laughs) All right, and Spies or Seconds? I am saying Seconds. Seconds. Puts it at 197. Number 197. So it breaks 200, but barely. Right, and it it beat out Metropolis. Yeah, yeah.
0: Fair enough. Um, so where what does that do for your letterbox view? And you know what I realized? Did mm. we do we didn't do letterbox last week? We, we got did. totally sidetracked, and it's didn't not we? I don't think it's in the show. I listened to it several times because I was putting sneaking chapters in and uh and I couldn't find it in the end. Huh. I may have totally blacked out.
1: Well, I know we I know I wrote it down.
0: I know you wrote it down.
1: I don't hear I don't it. I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember
0: hearing it. So, we got. What does this do for your letterbox this week? Uh, I'm at three and a half. Three and a half. That seems to touch high for me.
1: It's it's exactly where Metropolis is. I, I feel these are both on par. And actually, I think it would have been a little lower if it wasn't for the ending. And it actually took me a few days to kind of stew on that ending where I just kind of – I was really amazed that that's how he ended the film. Yeah. And it uh, ended up – I ended up bumping it up. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I put it – on par with Metropolis, and this is one of those ones where I feel like I'm going to go back and forth as to which one I prefer. Over yeah,
0: time. I that really surprises me because I I suddenly wanted this. I felt like I wanted this one to be a three star, and I wanted now uh, Metropolis to be two and a half. <laughs> I and so I'm I am okay with revising history just a little bit in my head. So I'll give you three and a half on this one, as long as I I, I could I guess now I should bump it up even higher uh, to four stars. Wow. It's, my inner monologue is I, I really know. terrible right now. Should <laughs> I stop you or let you keep going? <laughs> this is the no, best I'm spy gonna... movie ever. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to go three and a half stars with you, uh, and I'm going to shut up. Okay. Well, there you have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you go. Where do we go from here? We're, we're still uh, keeping on, keeping on with our fantastic um, Fritz Lang series. Yeah,
1: We're wrapping up his silent films, and uh, we're skipping his next one, which is Woman in the Moon. Uh, which is his last silent film, and we're jumping over that to talk about M. Like uh, I said last week, we're talking about a lot of his M uh, films, yeah. the films that start with the letter M. And here, of course, is the letter M. <laughs> 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 so we'll be talking about it. This is like a Sesame Street film, it is. isn't it?
0: Very much so. This is Peter Lorre for the kiddies.
1: Peter Peter Lorre, right?
0: I haven't seen this either. Have you seen this?
1: Oh yes, I have I mean, not. This seen was this. definitely a film school film.
0: Oh good. Oh, I love getting film school, Andy. <laughs> uh, I look forward to it. Uh, and we also have, let's see. Uh, before that, we've got a uh, trailer rewind coming up next week, and this is uh, this is a good one. They're doing Comet. And you know what else? I think they they take us to school a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I still need to watch that one.
0: I know, me too. I actually want to after hearing this show. So I look forward to getting that out there. Uh, and uh, so there you go. Trailer Rewind on Tuesday, and uh, M will come up next
1: Thursday. I
0: think that's Fantastic. it, Andy.
1: i got to go to bed. All right, well, I've got to go get my clown outfit on. Time for my next performance. <laughs>
0: Amazon giveth, Andy. Um, I'm going to give you one. I did a, uh, this is a a three-star that I think I came up with. Three-star. This is a a three-star because, frankly, the one and two stars, you took the only good one star, and the two stars were even, there was like one of them, and it wasn't very good. So uh, here we go. And I'm picking this one because I think, uh, largely, I agree with its central point. Impressive, but overlong, says Steiner Vine voice. On uh, December 10, 2005, Fritz Lang's silent crime thriller pits a government agent against a scheming international banker who is stealing government documents. Considered an overlooked but crucial part of Lang's impressive canon and an important influence on thrillers of Alfred Hitchcock, it does have some first-rate cutting and painterly images of the city's dense layering. However, this version, at least, is simply way too long. One can anticipate what's going to happen later in the film with more than a half hour to go. The film could easily afford to lose somewhere in the order of one hour of its footage, unnecessary viewing for anyone interested in the work of Fritz Lang, all the same. I agree with that. It's too long. I could have used it cut down quite a bit, but I still love it.
1: There you go. I, I can I can, I can, can agree with that. Well, I've got the one star, apparently. The, yeah. The uh, good one star, who says, Stupid! I love silent movies. By Cyrus on May 20th, 2015. Cyrus says, in short, stupid. I love silent movies. Go watch Thief of Baghdad for a real masterpiece. Here, except for the first two minutes, which was visually interesting, albeit with radic synth music, the rest of the movie suffered from a poor plot, poor visuals, and poor acting. The synth music made it even worse. No, I don't think mine had synth music, again, it wasn't that great. I know there are two scores out there right now, so maybe the synth is the other version. I don't know. Regardless, you know, Cyrus, I I don't know. Sorry, Sorry, Cyrus.
0: Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022...